Sure. Where we're uh, the podcast where we don't know what name we are. Yeah, uh, sure. Are we are we the LSAT guys? Are we the LSAT pros? <laughs> the readers, uh, the listeners can decide. Yeah, sure. We can see, do that. Uh, used to being a writer there when I say the, the readers, but now we're on a podcast. So New the listeners. listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so listeners, uh, you can let us know what you think we should be called. Uh, LSAT guys and LSAT pros were the two leading ones we had come up with. How to LSAT had like one mention. I don't know. Was there any other name that uh, we had that you liked, Steve? No, I think it's definitely one of those three. I personally am partial to LSAT pros, but people are talking about LSAT guys a lot. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, but we have a very small sample size, and we know from the LSAT that that is not uh, a good thing to go on. So hopefully, some more people listening to this will let us know what they think. And in this podcast, we're basically just going to be doing like a question and answer of questions that people have for us about the LSAT. So I'm Graham Blake, an LSAT instructor in Montreal. And I'm Steve Schwartz, an LSAT, LSAT instructor in New York. And we're taking right. your questions. So got a, got a bunch here. We'll go through as many yeah, as we can. First. So got one here from Judith. I often have problems diagramming when I see statements that start with no. Like no cats mm. are dogs. Is that supposed to be diagrammed as not cats arrow dogs or cat arrow not dogs? This seems to me to be an incorrect negation, but I think that is what I'm not understanding. She asks more, but let's start with that alone. What are your thoughts on that, Graham? How do you explain that kind of conditional to students? Yeah, well, I think I just sort of skimmed what she said, but I think she's got it right. That basically you want to think like, well, I guess there's a couple ways. One, you could think like, just forget the no and think like you've got cats, our dogs, so C, arrow, D. Um, but then once you add the no in there, you're saying this isn't the case. And so you negate the necessary condition. So you're saying if you're a cat, you're not a dog. As in that thing that we were talking about, that is not happening. There is no way that's happening. No. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think that the statement, no cats are dogs, the way it's framed is giving us information about cats. It's saying that if something is a cat, then it's not a dog. So I agree with you that we're negating the necessary condition. Another thing I think about with this kind of translation, she was asking, is the negative in the sufficient or in the necessary? And so that brings me to think about logic games and the difference between a positive variable followed by a negative variable in contrast to a negative variable followed by a positive variable, speaking around the, the conditional arrow. And so the idea is, are we establishing a minimum of what is happening or are we, are we limiting the maximum? So if we say, if something is not a cat, then it is a dog. We're saying that everything in the world is either a cat or a dog. And that's definitely not what the original no cats are dogs was attempting to explain. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think you raised two really important things there. One, just to go back to something you said at the start, I think it's really important to say, what are we talking about when we say no cats are dogs? We're making a statement about cats. And so I think when people jump to, like, not cats, it's very important that uh, basically you're separating the no from the cats and the cats that we're talking about. Um, the second thing, yeah, I think that's great that when you say, like, if you're, like, not sense filter, because, you know, like, again, I, this iPhone I have in my hand, it's not a cat. So according to the statement, it's a dog. And the LSAT general doesn't do nonsense. And you also have to take things literally. So that is like a logic game sort of thing. And it doesn't make any sense if you think about it in terms of like real world cats and dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's pretty much it. That if you put a no in the sufficient condition, you're saying if this does not happen or things that do not have this property must then have some other property. And so, yeah, if, if it's not a cat, then it's an iPhone. You have everything in the world is cats or iPhones. Which yeah. of course, which of course would be an absurd statement. Now, Judith wrote in, uh, referring to a specific question from test 35, section one, question 22. I think she's talking about the chordates and tracheophytes question where, where they say um, no C's, RT's, like no chordates or tracheophytes. Do you know this question, Graham? It's like a sufficient assumption. It rings a bell. I, just, yeah. I think that's the only time in my life I've heard the word chordates. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's got to be the LSAT. But uh, I, I think we've got enough info there to discuss the specifics. Just they said if no 
no core dates for trachea fights. That's the statement we're trying to diagram. Well, that's, that's what I'm raising. She wants to diagram it as not C-R-O-T, but again, that would be saying that everything that is not a core date is automatically a trachea fight. Steve, are you a core date? Um, I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I hope not. That sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, is this is this computer mouse uh, a core date? Probably not. I think core dates are no. biological. So, so if we say not core date, then trachea fight, so that would mean this computer mouse is a tracheophyte. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's that yeah, that's in I think it's hard to get into the frame of mind of taking stuff on the L set literally to think that you could make a statement like that, but that's that's what that says. It says everything in the world's not a chordate is a tracheophyte. Yeah, and exactly. that's just they're not gonna put a statement like that on the L set because nothing in the world is like that. Yeah, and these are based on real-world knowledge and information. I mean, occasionally they'll use really flawed reasoning that people wouldn't actually make in real life, most likely. But when we're getting as mechanical as this with conditionals, yeah. I think it's safe to say that they're probably going to stick to things that are more plausible. Yeah, because whenever they're giving a conditional, they're usually listing a fact. That There are times when you know people will make absurd reasoning, but they usually reason from some kind of fact that is not wrong right yeah they're typically starting from real world given information yeah so what's her actual question oh can you please explain how this is not an incorrect negation well i think it just goes back to the explanation we gave about the the dogs and cats right yeah i think i think we covered it just how do you translate those what's the correct way to translate what's not if you have a negative and the sufficient followed by a positive and the necessary you're saying that if it's not one, then it must be the other. So you, it'll always be at least one of those two. And like we yeah. said, you know, iPhones are not chordates or tracheophytes, so we do have third possibilities. Yeah. And I think sometimes people look for like kind of, as a first step, they'll look for kind of like a mechanical way mm -hmm. to translate these things. And I, I guess the mechanical way here is like, if you see a no you, in front of the left-hand side, you just sort of take it to the right-hand side, you move it from sufficient to necessary. Does, does that always work? I, I'm actually not sure. Yeah, I would say it does. If that you if you have a yeah. sentence starting with the word no, no x r y, then the then the diagramming becomes x arrow not y. So yeah, it yeah. is being applied to the necessary condition. Yeah. So take the no, move it from sufficient to the necessary instead. Yeah, I would say take take the no, move it from, move it from the left to the necessary because yeah. the way the sentence was started initially did not was not like a conditional in this in the standards oh it's true it's not like no if cat <laughs> yeah 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 but no the idea is right sure. you're moving it generally from the left to the right yeah all right all right so we've got another one here from nadine in regards to the logical reasoning section how can i increase my speed when reading a stimulus and at the same time recognize the flaws missing premises in a timely manner because i find myself pausing for a while to predict my answers which in most cases i find myself reading rereading the stimulus and the clock is ticking and then i start feeling anxious nervous and stressed out a lot there start let's start with the I first feel, part yeah go, go ahead um, I, was how, just gonna say, I feel like I, this question is like everything yeah this question is like everything <laughs> Every everyone always thinks about with the lsat yeah there's time there's flaws there's the ticking clock there's anxiety okay so how can I, talking about LR specifically, how can I increase my speed when reading a stimulus? Let's just stop there. That alone's mm -hmm. a big question. We could talk about the IDing the conclusion versus the evidence, you know, reading strategically, reading for the structure, not the content. Those are just my quick two seconds on that. What do you think, Graham? Yeah, those are my main two things too. And further, I think someone could actually do a drill on this, like, because I, I think vanishingly few people actually do this, but you could take a section and just drill to identify the conclusions and actually look at like what words are doing it so that you can kind of like almost skim it later when you're, I mean, you don't want to be skimming on the LSAT, but you want to be able to quickly, if you want to identify the conclusion. But yeah, that's, that's how I'd say to go faster. Just read for the structure and see that where they're going with it. Yeah. I love your idea of you know, going through the entire section as a drill, just IDing conclusions versus the evidence. You could do the same where you go through the section and you look to ID specifically what the question type is based on the question stem. Uh, sometimes yeah. in the more recent exams in particular, LSAT uses like unfamiliar language in question stems to refer to things that you already do know. You already know 
strengthen, weaken, parallel, but they can make it seem unfamiliar. They can put a mask on it at first. So recognizing structures is really useful to be able to do. Is the conclusion at the beginning, at the end? Is it in the middle? Is there a sub-conclusion? Looking at all those structural argument parts can be really helpful. So yeah, a couple things there. Yeah, and another thing I would add is that this is like a more specific case of just learning the things that you don't know. Because there could also be like, say on some logical reason question, you might've gone slower because there was a specific word you didn't know. Like, I don't know, let's say someone wasn't super familiar with all the uses of the word therefore. Um, that's a pretty easy one because it's more common, but I'm sure there's like some structural words there that are a bit harder for people, like maybe nevertheless. Um, that is like a repeating LSAT conclusion or reasoning type word but just some people may not know very well. They also set a vocabulary test, but there are some things that if you learn them will speed you up. Um, spotting conclusion words, learning the question types, those are other things that you can learn to speed you up. But generally, the way to go faster is just knowing the things that you don't know and that repeat. Um, yeah, anything else in that vein that you can think of that like might be a deficiency for someone that would slow them down but would be learnable? Yeah, I, th I think it's those things like nevertheless that only come up once every several exams maybe. Or maybe it nevertheless could appear in the same exam for a reading comp passage and an LR set question, but for the reading comp it didn't matter that much, but for the LR it does. But if there's something that comes up only once every half dozen exams or 15 exams, or it could be a question like evaluate the argument in LR, which is one of those that shows up only every like eight or 10 exams or something like that. So if you see it for the first time, it could be a little scary, but if you review enough where you actually focus on those unfamiliar things, you can then get some valuable takeaways for the next time. And I think students often don't take the time to slow down and actually check what does this word nevertheless mean or how do I handle and evaluate the argument question. The way you speed up is if you've seen something for the third or fourth time and you're practiced in it. Yeah. All right, what was her next bit of next the question? Next thing was um, at the same, you speed up but at the same time, recognize the flaws, the, the, the so-called missing premises or, or she's missing premises, I'm not sure. Yeah, let's see. But how does, she re how does she recognize what's wrong with the argument or how does she recognize the method of reasoning quickly? Yeah, when she's a missing premise, you said I think she meant just like if the flaw was a missing premise. Right, okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think you summed it up. Um, let's see here. So, actually, when you're reading an argument, are, I think when I'm doing it, I'm basically identifying the structure and the flaw at the same time, as in sometimes I can see the flaw, but I don't always. But then once I get the structure, I'll definitely turn to the flaw, as in I may sort of spot it as I go, but I'm mainly looking for structure. And whether or not I found it, I'll then focus on the flaw. But I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think I get what you mean. I, I, I would say I do similar. I read the stimulus. I'm looking to determine the method of reasoning, which is, is the to me is the structure. It's how they go about making their argument and to what extent the evidence supports the conclusion and to what extent the conclusion goes beyond the evidence. So I'm evaluating how reasonable I consider the argument to be. And in doing so, I'm finding the flaw. And you could say it's the flaw or you could say it's the gap, depending on whether you have a spirit of generosity towards the speaker, right? It's all based on your perspective. You could have one person calls it a, the gap a necessary assumption, the other person calls it a flaw. But I think recognizing mm -hmm. what's going on, recognizing that gap, is how both of us are, are reading. We're, we're reading in, in such a way that we will inevitably find it, or at least know yeah. that something's off. And I always like to think when thinking about these things is like, what parts of this am I doing that are just sort of like a high level intuitive skill that like you do when you're 170 plus, but that's not necessarily what you do when you're learning to be 170 plus. Um, and so I think if I were to say like, how would I speed up? Say I was at like 150, 155. I think I would mostly focus on just identifying that structure and not worry about finding the flaw until you figured out precisely what they're saying. And once you identified what you're saying, then you can evaluate. But if you're getting into like the 160s, mid 160s, 
then you want to start letting your intuition do the work as well and start to just sort of, I don't know, if, if something flashes into your mind when you're reading the argument, like don't ignore it. It's probably telling you something about what you're reading that like this might be an alternate possibility, like a different way things could be um, or something that's missing, some factor that's relevant. Uh, I, I find when people get sort of closer to the edge of just mastery over the whole thing that you'll get more flashes like that. Absolutely. Yeah. As you get into higher score bands, you're more likely to be considering those alternate possibilities and alternate explanations. And so when those insights pop into your head, you definitely want to pay attention to them because that could be your correct prediction of the correct answer, or at least the idea that there is something incomplete about their method of reasoning. If you're scoring a bit yeah. lower, then you want to focus just on your general comprehension of the stimulus. What was the conclusion? What was the evidence? And then go from there. Of course, you don't always have to prephrase or even consider that there could be a, a gap when there might not be if it's a fact set or if the gap is really not what you need to be focusing on based on the question type. Yeah, true. And I would say if you're not sure, then it's best just to look for conclusion reasoning and then check the question type because that'll tell you whether or not you should be looking for a flaw or not. Yeah. Um, like most of the time at an advanced level when you just read through it, then you will just, you'll sort of know there's something wrong, even if you don't know what it is, but don't worry too much about it. If you don't know, just check the question type. Yeah. And part of the reason why people who score better do recognize the questions, the questions method of reasoning more quickly and understand it better is because they've done questions with that method of reasoning before the same methods of reasoning repeat in disguise with different topics associated and maybe even with different question stems. But a lot of times I've noticed that when I read a stimulus and an argument, I already am more likely to understand it because I've seen it before in a different form with a different topic in the past. It's not my first time absorbing that method of reasoning. Does that happen to you, Graham? Oh, definitely. Like a lot of times I don't even really have a name for some of the things I've seen. I'm like, oh, I reckon this is pattern. Yeah, it's like how, you know, I was just thinking like you might meet like, say, like a very you might know a type of like a very excitable person, say, and like you met this person before you're like, oh, I know like roughly how they might act or how to like talk with them. And but you don't have a name for like that type of character personality. You just like you recognize like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a thing in humanity. And yeah. you get the same kind of thing when doing the LSA. You're just like, this feels familiar. Um, so the more you do, and I think repeating questions and repeating sections are really helpful here, too, because your first time through, you may not actually get to know the question well enough to actually learn their pattern and be able to recognize it later. Yeah. Agreed on that. There's um, one more thing, one more aspect of her questions I thought would be useful to cover. She's saying, mm -hmm. I find myself pausing for a while to predict my answers. Then I'm rereading the stimulus. The clock is ticking. I start feeling anxious, nervous, and stressed out. So a couple things there, anxiety, the idea of, I think she's getting bogged down and stuck on, stuck on particular questions as she tries to predict her answers. So what do you tell students in that situation? Let's see. Well, first I don't recommend prediction if it's something that comes as a struggle. I think it's something that you should drill instead. Like actually maybe do a section where it's on timed, you cover the answers, you read the stimulus, you look at the question, Sam, and you think, what might be the thing here? And here you're specifically training the skill of prephrasing um, so that it's ready to use. Because like when I'm prephrasing, I'm not, I'm not sitting there for 30 seconds trying to think of the answer either. I'll get it in like three seconds after having fed my brain the inputs, like correctly getting the structure of the argument and figuring out precisely what they're saying. That's the inputs your brain needs that can take those and make a prediction. Um, but that should either happen very quickly, I think, or you just go to the answers. It's not something I'd ever spend like 20, 30 seconds doing. So if you want to get better at it, it's better not to do it, train that skill in like a high stress situation. I would train it outside of it and only do it when it feels like pretty kind of natural. Yeah, I think prephrasing, if it comes, great. But I wouldn't spend forever trying to get there if it's if it's not coming. Don't try, don't try to force it. The answer choices are there in front of you and you can use them. And sometimes there are multiple ways to strengthen or weaken an argument. And the way that you come up with might not be the one that they chose in the answer choices to place in front of you. 
And then in terms of you know, the psychology related to getting bogged down, I think if you're rereading the stimulus and it's not increasing your level of understanding, then you want to skip that question and come back to it later if you have time. I don't think you want to keep investing minutes throwing them away if it's not increasing your understanding or making it more likely you'll get to the correct answer. Yeah, I will re-skim it once. Like, let's say I go through the answers and I I don't know which answer it is, but I feel like I'm still missing something in the stimulus. I'll go over it again quickly just to see, like, can I find that thing? But if I don't find it quickly, then yeah, I'll move on. Like, as in, I think it can make sense to try, like, one quick attempt, but if you're just, like, rereading and rereading and reading, no, you're just, you're spinning your wheels. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would also say just about, like, anxiety, feeling anxious, stressed out, and so on. Um, it can be worth kind of like doing some self-talk to try and convince yourself that like, well, the else that's important in general, this particular question, like there's not really that many consequences for getting one right or one wrong. But if you let that anxiety mount, it's going to mess up other stuff. And also that anxiety generally comes from sort of like meta thought. So, you know, if you're just thinking like, what does this word mean? You probably are less likely to get anxious than if you think like oh i'm running out of time or oh i'm not doing well enough or oh, i'll never get to law school or whatever like it, it try and monitor what you're thinking about in the test and if you're thinking about things that aren't the thing that's present in front of you that's more likely to cause you anxiety and to actually hurt your progress on the exam yeah sort yeah, of like an else mindfulness mm -hmm. yeah worrying about the future instead of being in the present moment, you know, easier said than done to adjust. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, mindfulness meditation, if you start doing that now, then, and you did it consistently every day for even just three to five minutes to start with, then by the time you get, you got to your test date, you could have built those skills and everyone has three to five minutes a day. Don't tell me you don't. So if you just spend those three to five minutes focused on, your breath or a particular thought or mantra or whatever you want it to be, you can build the skill, the ability to focus and analyze your own thoughts such that when you're in test day, if you notice yourself getting into a spiral, you can bring yourself out of it and bring yourself back to that question or have the, the strength to let yourself skip that question and move on to the next. Do you remember what you focused on like back when you were studying for the LSAT and like there was actually pressure because you know when we take a prep test now like it doesn't really matter so it's just sort of like a fun thing but back when you were actually studying and like wanted a good score uh do you know do you remember your mindset like what you were focused on on the question because like obviously if a question's hard that's not good on that test but I personally don't remember thinking like oh no oh no like I would I would check the clock a bit just to make sure I was on track. But other than that, I think I was mostly just focused on the thing itself. Do you remember? Yeah, I would say that I, I was focused pretty much on the question itself. I definitely invested too much of myself in my results on any particular practice exam. So I would definitely yeah. get ego hits or ego boost depending on how I did. But so that affected your general mindset of like the whole exam or did that actually happen like in the exam while you were taking it too? It was more just with, within my taking the exam itself, I was just focused on the questions and the timing actually didn't really become an issue for me. Once I got, I became proficient enough in the content, it would get to the point where I would finish the section with time to spare and I could go back and tackle the difficult ones. But I would typically get to the point and I still do where if I'm doing a timed section or a timed exam, I might get three to five questions in an LR section where I'm unsure of them in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I skip them and I come back to them. I still do that now. I get, oh yeah, me too. If I were to run the risk of getting bogged down, I would just mark it off like with a, like a star, like an asterisk. And I would have a time bank built up. So I have like five minutes maybe to go back and look at those questions again. So... In the moment, I'm not that worried because I know I'll be able to come back to it later. Yeah. And I would add for like, there must be some people listening right now who are like, well, that's nice for you because you guys are fast, but I can't finish the section. Um, I think this still applies even if you can't finish the section. Like, let's say you're getting to like question 22 on average. Well, maybe if you start skipping some, you can get to question 24 and you can still have like a 50-50 or something guess on the ones you aren't sure about. Um, so it still pays off. Like it, 
maybe you can't come back to it, but you can get to a whole new question and you get some of the points on the one. So it's still a good strategy. Yeah, no, I, I think so. For anyone scoring at any point, it's better off, they're better off seeing the questions that come later than getting bogged down and never getting to those later questions. Yeah, but I just wanted to flesh out something that I did. Like it, I haven't really crystallized this before, but thinking about this person question, but like how we approach the exam. So you said you had an ego hit like in general outside the exam, which is obviously not great for like, you know, how well you feel when you're studying and, and most people feel kind of down on themselves a bit when they're studying for the LSAT, but it didn't impair your, your test taking because you didn't have any of that infiltrating the specific questions. And I didn't have that either. And I think this actually is a test taking skill. And once you give like a name to something and think about it as a concept, you can actually improve things. Cause like, you know, in, in some ways I'm just kind of lucky in the sense that like, I've always been like this. I don't tend to worry and stress about the thing that I'm doing. Um, so I haven't had to work on this, but I think if you're someone that does tend to like worry and stress during a test, like you can still train the ability of like, not, uh, sorry, my screen just went black there. You can still train the ability of focusing on the thing you're doing rather than worrying about like the larger thing and just pay attention to what your brain is thinking about and try and reroute it. And that's like, that's a skill just as like learning what a sufficient test question assumption is, is a skill. Cause you know, it's easy to just say like, oh, I'm bad at test taking or I'm high anxiety or whatever. But if you break it down to like what that means, we're just like, we're a collection of habits and we do specific things. And I think it's worth trying to like practice specific elements to address specific problems and, um, you know, improve the thing. Like I'm anxious about tests or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I think that the mindfulness, it's a skill and it's actually a skill that's very trainable and doesn't even really relate in any direct sense to the content of the LSAT itself. So if you feel like the LSAT's not really your thing, maybe mindfulness could be your thing. And that alone improves your LSAT score because it gives you the ability to focus on the question at hand. And so I think it's, again, you know, three to five minutes a day just to start. It is really hard. And it's, it's much harder than you would think, even just to do it for such a short period of time. But it does get easier over time. And so it's, it's, it's about a lot of things, but one of them is about self-control to, to stay focused on the task at hand and to stay mindful in the moment. So if on the LSAT, you are getting bogged down, but you could be mindful enough to recognize you're getting bogged down and let go of that question and also not worry about that question when you're on the, on the later ones because you know you can come back, or if not, that's just trusting in the strategy you've set out for yourself from the beginning. And do you think there's a way people could drill this, like not just by daily mindfulness, which I agree is important, but also like on the LSAT, like say maybe take the 10 questions timed, and as they go through it, they're trying to do the questions, but they're also paying more attention to their mind, say. And if uh, they notice their thoughts straying, maybe they take a breath and they return to looking at the question type or finding the conclusion or some concrete thing. Cause it's, I think it's easier to turn away from those kind of like self thoughts by going to a concrete thing, or, um, you could maybe have like a plan of like, okay, I'll try and identify the conclusion. Uh, if I can't do that, then I'll reread. If I still can't do that, then I'll skip. So what, you know, you know what you're supposed to do at each stage. And so if you find yourself having those thoughts, you just go back to the plan and you do the, the thing, but I don't know. I'm just trying to think of ways that people could actually train context specific present focus yeah no I, I love it i would say yeah these are things that i've talked about with students but i haven't crystallized it in quite the way you're talking about which i think would be useful so basically like the, the if i panic scenario or if i'm not understanding something or if i get bogged down then so yeah, yeah. i would say yeah absolutely what you what you pretty much laid out i would say is spot on so I'm a question stem first person. We could talk about that another time, but there's the question stem, there's conclusion, there's- Should we have a battle to the death about it? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that could be fun. We could do a whole episode just on that. (laughs) But so I do the question type and or conclusion in the same, around the same time. And whatever your order is, you go with that, you have your plan set out from the beginning. 
and you just walk through these steps. And if you're not gaining any traction and understanding, then yeah, you skip it, hope to come back later. Hopefully you were down to two and so you can just guess in the last few seconds before time is called or you can guess now if you want to. Yeah, because once you have a habit and make something routine, it's a lot easier to stick to it. So if you actually like lay out a plan and do it, it, it takes a, like a lower cognitive load to get through doing that as well. So that can be another advantage of that method. Yeah, and you have a plan, you have it laid out beforehand, and you've practiced it on real ex on practice exams so that on, on test day you, you already know if this works for you and you've practiced it a few times. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to the next one? Yeah, let's take a look. You want to actually, read that I think one? it might. Uh, I think we may have actually sort of covered this. Um, Gabrielle asks, "How do I improve at making predictions slash ensure I cover all the bases in logical reasoning?" Or at least I think we covered the first half. Um, is, is there any more you'd want to flesh out on how to improve at making predictions? Yeah, I would say one thing I notice a lot with logical reasoning, in particular, is the disconnect between evidence and conclusion. A lot of times you'll have one phrase that was in both. And so the, that phrase is justified because it was already in the evidence. But if there's a new phrase that was in the conclusion but not in the evidence, then the correct answer will often refer to that new phrase in some way. And it will often link it back to the evidence in some way. So those are that's just like one little thing I'd be on the lookout for is something new mentioned in the conclusion could also be in the correct answer, at least a guideline. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Um, I've got a couple others actually, I'm just jotting some notes down. But I think, so I mentioned doing like a drill exercise where you just practice uh, this. And I think some questions you can ask yourself when you're doing that, so that, that different uh, concept or word in the conclusion that you mentioned is one. Another one is like asking yourself, how could this not be true? Because they're, they're trying to lead you to somewhere in the conclusion, so you want to think, how could this situation not come about? And that often gets your brain like coming up with ideas of ways that it wouldn't happen. And the intuition is pretty good. Once you ask it the question, it may produce an image or a word or something of some plausible ways that actually do match the answers. Um, another question that feels very similar, but it's a bit different, I think, is like, is there any other way things could be? Um, actually, I don't have too much specifics about that because it, it sort of depends on the question you've got in front of you, but that can also help basically make a counterfactual because they're, they're trying to lead you somewhere when they're writing a question and you want to break out of the mold that the author is putting you into. Um, another one to look for would be there are a few little things that like they can throw in arguments that aren't question type things, but that will screw you up. One is relative versus absolute. So if it's like, something says high and then something else says higher. Um, so, you know, you could be higher off the ground, but you're, you just raised your chair, but you're not actually high. Uh, you're not three stories up. So that's one thing. Another is simply looking for a correlation. Um, oftentimes, well, our, our brains just suck at noticing causation correlation errors, but they're okay at noticing that two things have been mentioned and a relationship is happening between them. So you can just ask yourself, is there a correlation? And then, you can use that to make a prediction. Oh, maybe actually the correlation doesn't have a cause or something like that. Uh, I'm trying to think of any others. Do you have any others along that line of like way, like common things you see that people could practice looking for? Yeah, sure. Another thing would be degree of certainty mismatch. So if, oh, yeah. if one, if this stimulus is saying most of the time, but the conclusion is saying always, for example, so you're looking for mismatch in degrees of certainty or quantifiers, uh, one theme that I noticed running through what you were describing was something I talk about a lot, which is you know, considering alternate possibilities or alternate explanations for the one that was stated. So if the conclusion is making a claim that it's due to one particular reason, you might say, well, there are all these other possibilities that were not considered directly by the argument, and those would need to be addressed in order to argue in favor of the stated one. Those are good. I thought of a couple others. Um, one is like a should statement versus like a factual statement, as in those people are dying and we should help them. Um, because often our brain like just acts on both. So if we hear something like those people are hungry, then we'll automatically think, well, we should give them some food. But those are 
two different things. Um, and opinion versus fact is very similar. If it's like, you know, people believe something versus what is true. That, that one's actually not that as common, but these are just different filters you can sort of train yourself to, to spot. Um, another one is actually, it's similar to how could this not be true, but some situations are actually like hard to imagine. You can ask like, how could this be true? How could this argument work? Um, that can help. Yeah, yeah. I liked the prescriptive versus descriptive distinction yeah. you were laying out because I think that is one that comes up a lot. So if something yeah. is prescriptive, then we're dealing with what looks more like a general principle. And so you've got to recognize those in particular when they're when they're coming out because the language is very different in its meaning. And you mean prescriptive and prescribe as in this is this is what you should exactly. do or take. Exactly. Whereas descriptive is like, oh, that's that's orange. You yeah. Know? Yeah. All right. Uh, All right. Shall we? Take anything a look else at the next on? Yeah. Anything else on like how to predict? Like these are these are things you can look for. Um, I don't really think I have anything else, but... Oh, well, she said cover all the bases. Well, because yeah, general enough, so I don't really know how to answer that. Yeah, covering all the bases, I mean, that comes down to covering all the different question types out there. And that, I mean, that's one thing you want to be thinking about. But also, when this is more difficult, covering all the methods of reasoning that appear on the LSAT. And you know, people sometimes ask me how they could you know, cover all the methods of reasoning. And questions aren't really categorized that way in part because I think it would be too difficult to do so. I think really students just have to do a, a lot of LSAT questions in order to see the various methods of reasoning coming up in different forms. And also to see those questions that come up only once in a blue moon, like evaluate the argument. Yeah. I think one good general catch-all rule though is in terms of covering all the bases, if there's anything you don't understand or don't feel you could explain to someone, then work at understanding it and being able to explain it. And a good standard is you need to think to them like where the bathroom is and how the stove works and how the toaster works and how to close the window. And you would have no difficulty. You would have no lack of confidence at all in explaining those things. And I think for most people sitting in the outside, you could also like explain roughly what a sufficient condition is and a necessary condition and not as intuitive as a toaster, but you should be able to explain them. But as soon as you get into the territory of like, well, I don't know if I could, you know, I'd, I'd feel embarrassed if I had someone come over and like ask me about this and I couldn't explain it. Like, that's a standard you really should hold yourself to um, because that's how you fill in all the gaps in your knowledge. Because there's, you know, there, there's a lot of bases on the LSAT and that's really the only way to figure out the ones you haven't got. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be able to explain it in your own words. So like if you're reading an explanation or watching an explanation, then and you say oh yeah i get it now and you move on but you couldn't articulate it for yourself then you don't really get it you've got to be able to paraphrase it and even write it down exactly because when someone comes to visit you don't start quoting them the toaster manual yeah you tell them how it works <laughs> and if all you can do is read back the manual and if all you can do is read back the explanation in some video or a book or a blog or whatever yeah you haven't got it yeah yeah, well said. So the, the value of review and really thinking things through. Uh, Trevor's got a question. How can I save time on logic games? I can rarely comfortably finish a section with time remaining. I usually have to drop a couple of questions at the end because I feel, because I cannot finish a game. Often I have to drop a game entirely. What should I do about this? So timing on logic games can't finish the section. What do you think? Do you want to start on this one or do you want me to... Yeah, sure. Um, two quick things I could say. One is that you want to do the easy games quickly. You want to be really proficient in doing those simple games. I'm thinking in particular of relative ordering games, as well as in and out games involving conditional chains. Those are games that there have been many exactly like each other. And so if you practice those now, you could get to the point where you can do a lot of those in six minutes if you're good enough at them and then that saves you time for the tougher games that come later the other Great thing point. is yeah the other thing is uh, making it inferences up front when possible that saves time and finally being prepared for any curveball games that might come up so that you're not totally thrown and bogged down when those do appear yeah 
those are all good points. I want to focus on the first one because actually I think this applies to all sections, but um, people generally pat themselves on the back for getting a question right and they investigate the questions they got wrong. But obviously you need, if you go faster on easy questions, you have time for the harder questions. If you go at the same pace on every question, you, well, you're going to run out of time. So you definitely need to master the easy games and keep working. Even when you get everything right, you want to be instead as fast as possible. Um, but so one thing I thought about this though, is that it's, uh, it's very, to some extent, it's going to be very specific to the person because it depends on what is slowing them down. One thing I tell people a useful exercise is that you can actually like have a friend time you and just sort of arrange a system to call out the things that, I don't know, you could call it like doing rules and you call out like doing first question, uh, and make up some system they can run a series of timers and like mark down how long you're doing on each thing and you actually can get like a little report at the end of that to see like where are you spending your time because you don't really know what's slowing you down and you might have to make a system of calls for like on the specific question where it's like i don't know drawing or thinking of an inference or brute forcing answers like you could easily get into the weeds like getting too specific with this but as you do it you'll start to see like where you need more info but i think like actually figuring out what is making you slow is important and you could also call it some things like oops forgot a rule if you spent like three minutes on a question you realize what happened um where they so they could start to see the things that are actually screwing you up because you know that when you're doing it in the moment but then when you review this the section like an hour later after you're done the test like all of that knowledge is gone yeah that's a, that's a great point definitely to help with the post-exam review is to yeah, marking it down in the moment or having some way to note note when you're bo getting bogged down or could have done something more efficiently because you're right, Graham. The questions you get right are also worth focusing on. If they're correct, but they took you a really long time, that could hurt you for later in terms of not finishing the section or not having enough time to devote to a difficult question that really deserved the time. So yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah. a solid point. There's there's one other thing, which is I think one of the biggest causes of people being slow in logic games is that they've forgotten one or more rules. They just don't have them at the tips of their fingers. And what I say to people is like, uh, let's say you're traveling in a foreign country and you don't know all the customs. But if you see someone like punch an old lady in the street on the face right away, you don't need any kind of guidebook. You're like, well, that's wrong. Like that must be wrong here. That's a rule violation. And it's just a gut instant thing. And when you're doing a logic game, I think you should try and cultivate the same thing where if you see like, I don't know, like T goes in three, you're like, no, don't do that. That's wrong. Like it should be, it shouldn't be a hesitation where if, you know, someone punches the poor old lady and you're like, hmm, what is this situation? Is this good or bad? I don't know. Uh, let me check my rule book. That's, that's not how you react to like right or wrong things that you see around you with your moral intuitions in everyday life. And you basically want as much as possible to get the same intuitions with the rules. And now this is, I think the big challenge of logic games, but you should explicitly set as a goal that obviously you have your diagrams. So the rules are there that you can check the diagrams, but that's just like, for me, that's like a fail safe. The, the first order thing is actually just roughly knowing what the rules are. So that when I see a thing mentioned, I know how it links to some other thing and how that, you know, a chain of things happened as a result of that. Or I know if I start drawing a diagram, I know not to put something at some place because that's illegal. Um, most of the, when I've watched students do games, most of the slowdowns are because they just have forgotten something or they'll even make a deduction somewhere, not write it down, forget it a question later, spend two minutes making it again. And it's just like, um, a, so A, write stuff down, but B, just make sure that you remember things and actually you can drill this too and like have someone quiz you on whether you know the rules after you've done the setup and so on, turn over your page and have someone quiz and just try and list the rules to them. You might be surprised that, like how much you can't do this or how much you didn't realize you were not getting this necessary information. I love it. That was a tremendous amount of knowledge right there. Yeah, making it, making it intuitive. I think that's something that's really valuable to to emphasize to the point where it just becomes innate and you can do the game 
like a, three days later and you would already, you'd still know the rules or at least be able to reabsorb them extremely quickly. And I think part of what's so valuable about, about redoing the same logic game is that you get to the point where the, the knowledge of the rules is innate enough or drilled in enough where you can actually use more brain power to see the relationships. Yeah. And I think that's you part of the, the value. You get the experience. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, on. you get the experience of what it feels like to actually be doing a game where you know the stuff. Yeah. And once you know the stuff, you can see the game more how, like, your grammar I might see where, where we have the mental bandwidth to to play around with different possibilities and, you know, quote-unquote, like, see a few moves ahead because we know the game the game rules well enough, but you want to get to the point where you know it the first time. Exactly. So I think, like redoing games so you know what that feeling feels like and you start to see your shortcuts can both give you a thing to aim for and also improve the bandwidth because you see some of the shortcuts and then if you aim to actually like know all the rules as well as you do on a repetition that can help because uh, like if you do know the rules the games are easy i think it's knowing the rules and knowing how to represent them and combine them and it's a hard bit so actually i don't have a great point at the end of this but uh <laughs> No, no, that, that is the point. The point is that if you yeah. if you know the rules well enough, you can do pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think right. we hit that one pretty well. You want to you want to take on one more? Yeah, I think so. So uh, I'll read this one. So Kyle asks, how do I make the most out of reviewing a single stimulus or passage using it to sharpen the various skill sets? What sort of questions, techniques, habits, and other mindset tools should I be deploying as I approach and review each passage or stimulus? Did we sort of answer this with listing like how you prephrase? Or is there... Yeah, I think we covered a lot of it, but... I guess the review process, we could talk, we could talk about that, like the reviewing afterwards. Hmm. And we did talk about it quite a bit. I guess there's one thing I could say about the interesting thing. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say it's an interesting thing in itself, that at least to my mind, the how do I prephrase and how do I review end up being the same question, which is an interesting thing in itself. That basically, I guess I did answer how I review, but it's maybe not obvious that like I'm I'm trying to train my pattern filters. So I've identified those patterns that I listed and that you listed um, as like things, and then I look for them when I'm reviewing. I'm looking for patterns and so that when I'm doing a new question, I can see the pattern and predict things. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so all those things, little things we were mentioning, like like the you know, relative versus absolute or whatever mismatches might come up. If you, if you mis, misunderstood the question initially, it's because you didn't understand one of those things or you, you fell for a trap answer that played into a particular mismatch. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, a, I, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say that raises another good point, which is like on a lot of you people will be like, oh, how did I miss this? This was obvious. Talking about trap answers and stuff. Um, in that point, the habit you need to have is like, well, why, how did they get me? Why did they do this? It wasn't an accident. Like the question was designed to catch like 23% of test people to like do that thing. So you, you can't just say like, oh, that was a stupid mistake. You have to think like, how did they do it? Let's deconstruct this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, looking at the patterns and wrong answer choices is really valuable. One thing I recommend to students is you know, when they look at a wrong answer they chose, what was tempting about it that made them pick it and what ultimately made it wrong and what was discouraging about the right answer that pushed them away from it and what ultimately made it correct. And so really forcing yourself to drill down into those wrong answers and the right answers and why you chose or did not choose them. It takes yeah. at least 10 minutes per question. And I think students typically don't spend enough time. Yeah, because getting back to what we said earlier about um, being able to explain something to someone else, like when you're reviewing, like you really ought to aim to just understand everything. Like what does this answer mean is actually a challenge at a lot of levels where you're just like, you literally are not actually quite sure what the answer is referring to. And that's something you have to figure out. Um, or... So they mentioned like what techniques, habits, and other mindset tools. So I think like any words you don't know, you should like underline them and look them up. Like it may not be 
like I said, it's not a vocabulary test, but I feel like this is something that people who have a high level of reading skill do. Like they don't want to ever not know what a word is. And it's very common, even people who, you know, you do a social science degree, you get A's, like you think you're a good reader, but there are going to be words that you haven't mastered. You don't know a secondary definition or you don't know it so well. And just generally the mindset of like filling every gap and figuring out everything that isn't super obvious to you when you do it, I think is the best review tool. Yeah, I think you want to get to the point where you're not satisfied with just looking at the correct answer or an explanation and accepting someone else's explanation of why the answer is correct. Like it's got to get to the point where you could convince someone else why the answer was correct using every possible explanation or tool at your at your disposal. I think for the 165-170 plus category, you want to get to the point where you could actually you understand the exam so well that you could write questions for it. Oh yeah, you raised a good point there too, just, or sorry, you addressed something about like using explanations and so on. I think this is an important review thing that explanation, like, I mean, I read a bunch of explanations. So like, obviously I think explanations are something people should be using, but it's possible to get too reliant on them and use them for like your first line thinking. I don't think, I think when you're just starting, then you can just read explanations immediately after. But once you kind of start to know what's going on, then you want to review questions on your own, maybe even try them again on your own, and then check the explanation after to confirm if you found the right things in it or to confirm your understanding, but you shouldn't use it to initially explain because you need to build the skill of actually figuring stuff out on your own. Yeah, agreed. And you could also use the explanations just to see an alternative approach. Especially for games, there are many, many, many different ways to solve a game. And the explanations you see out there are just one person's way. That too. So you can figure out like one approach on your own, and then you can maybe see another approach and then, oh yeah, that would have been good too. But you want to get your own method first. Yeah. Yeah, build your own skills, your own tool set. All right. Awesome. It's been about about 50 minutes, I think. Yeah, you want to leave off here? Yeah, I think that's a good episode for for now. So All right, guys, thank well, you everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for tuning <laughs> in. Um, we'll be doing more of these in the future. Um, best way to reach Steve, you, Graham? Where can people... Oh, yeah. So the best way to reach me is um, my site, lsathacks.com. And I'm not really that active on that much social media, but if you want to follow me somewhere, I'm Graham underscore Blake on Instagram. Great, yeah. What about you? My site is LSAT Blog. You can email me at lsatunplugged at gmail.com. And best way to keep in touch is to join my email list, which you'll get you'll get a pop-up if you if you visit the site. So it's easy to join. Great. And uh oh yeah, should people uh yeah. send in questions? Did you get any after the last episode? Yeah, I did get some questions, but yeah, keep sending them in. And uh, keep sharing your feedback and ideas for a name. We still have to figure that out. And yeah, just reach out and let us know your thoughts and let us know you're out there. All right. Talk to you later. Bye, guys.